morning to First Corinthians chapter six in your Bible. And before we get there, we'll make a, a few comments real quickly. One, I would encourage you to be praying for me today. I'm I don't know that I'm even sick, but I am clogged up. I woke up in the middle of the night and really clogged up terribly. And um Thank you. 
And, by the way, I have been asked a question or two about
know Christ that this would be the day when that one would be regenerated by your spirit and come to faith come to the place of repentance trusting Christ and him alone and we'll praise you for your work in our hearts and we praise you because of who you are and what you have done for it's in Christ's name that we pray amen I'm going <clears> to <throat> do a little reviewing and things like that. So it'll take me just a little bit of time to get 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But I, um, I want to begin with an illustration. You don't usually do that. You usually illustrate something after you've already uh, taught the point. But I want to begin with a little bit of an illustration, and you'll understand why I'm doing this a little later. I heard recently about a, a an English teacher, I'm presuming, in school that gave her class or his class this assignment. Write a sentence using the word why. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of your minds are already going there. You're coming up with all different kinds of sentences that use the word why, aren't you? And you can, you can even use why in a, in a not a question sentence. You can say, we did this... Um, or, or why we did this is, is for this reason. But there was one particularly intelligent, I assume, student who answered that question in, in the most succinct, wonderful way possible with this simple question. Why? That's a full sentence. Now again, let me ask another question that begins with the word why. Why would I choose to begin a sermon with that illustration, especially in light of the fact that, again, illustrations usually come following a statement made in order to illustrate the truth of that statement? Well, the reason is this. Sometimes the best way to say a lot, to be really profound, is to use as few words as possible. And so in order to focus your attention on the reason for the atonement or the necessity of the atonement, maybe is a better way to put this, that is so eloquently spoken of in his robes for mine, I want to give you a three-word sentence. And we could perhaps shorten it even more, but this is about the best I can do. And here it is. God hates sin. If you want to know why the atonement was necessary, that three-word statement will tell you why it was necessary. God hates sin. And we could expand that a little bit, I suppose, by saying that God hates sin because He is holy. And a holy God must hate anything that's unholy. He is perfect, righteous. He is separate from all that is evil. And so he can never excuse or refuse to punish evil. Keeping that in mind, we do preach a gospel that indicates that God will fellowship with us though we are evil. 
And so we come to the question of how can that be? How can it be that a holy God can and will fellowship with creatures who are unholy? Creatures who are sinners. The answer is found in the atonement made by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really the only answer to that question. Christ paid the price so that we could be brought into fellowship with God. There is no other answer. Now before we get to the passage that I hope to expose this morning, I want us to get a, a, an idea of what sin is. This may seem strange, but it seems to me that too often we take for granted that people understand what sin is. And there was likely a day in the United States when that was true. But if you go out on the streets, it's likely, by the way, that most of you understand what sin is. But do we define that to our children very well? And if you were to go out on the streets, like many have been trying to do, um, and, and if you are trying to evangelize wherever you are in your work or to your neighbors, wherever you're doing that, one of the things that you're probably running into is that there are more and more people who do not know what sin is or who try to say that, well, I'm not a sinner. Why is that? Well, I think it starts in many ways with the language. Let me give you some examples of that real quickly. Drunkards are not drunkards anymore. They're alcoholics. See the difference in the wording? An alcoholic has a disease. A drunkard is a sinner. Adulterers are not adulterers anymore. They're having an affair. Let me give you a, an example. I mean, this just happened to me recently. I was reading through a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It was written by a man named Carl Truman. And he was speaking about the background and mainstream of perversions like homosexuality and transgenderism. And in so doing, he indicated that there was at least one form of moral evil that in our culture is still absolutely prohibited, absolutely forbidden. Nobody will accept this. Here's what he said. He said, yet... Here I come to an important phenomenon requiring that I qualify the notion of the modern self simply as psychological man or the expressive individual. He says, even now in our sexually libertarian world, certain sexual taboos remain in place, pedophilia being perhaps the most obvious. Not all expressions of individualism, not all behaviors that bring about a sense of inner psychological happiness for the agent are regarded as legitimate. So he's saying that pedophilia, that's not accepted, though almost everything else is. The book was written in 2020. So depending on when it was published, two to three years ago, two and a half years ago, wherever that actual month and, and day fall. Before I finished the book, while I was reading the book, 
I started hearing news reports over and over again on a push to mainstream pedophilia. And again, it begins with language. Such predators are no longer to be referred to as pedophiles, a group of criminals that are so disgusting they have to be separated from the mainstream population in our prisons because they'll get killed. They're no longer to be called pedophiles. They are to be called minor attracted persons. Doesn't sound near as bad as pedophile, does it? And of course, they were born that way. That's the argument. And since they were born that way, we can't blame them for being what they were born. When we decide that there is no such thing as sin, there are only psychological problems, we change the language, and things that are horribly sinful become no longer bad. They're simply things that we have to work with a little bit because, after all, no one can help that. And again, that book was only written two to three years ago. And in that length of time, we are actually trying to mainstream the very thing that he said was totally off limits, even in our culture. When you think it can't get any sicker, it does. But I think we need to understand sin better than that. So let me take you to three passages of Scripture real quickly, or at least as quickly as I can. The first is in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 records for us the sad failure and beginning of it all. Having been placed in a perfect garden with a perfect environment, with a perfect relationship with one another and with God, Adam chose to rebel against his creator. He was not deceived as Eve was, but with full knowledge of what he was doing, rebelled against the God who made him and who had been nothing but good to him. The original sin of our first ancestor was truly a great rebellion against God. The second passage to which I would turn your attention, and we'll read through this one, is in Exodus chapter 20. Many of you already know what Exodus chapter 20 is about, at least the first several verses of this chapter. We have recorded in Exodus chapter 20 the Ten Commandments. Verse 1, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. 
You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain." I want to pause in my reading there for just a moment, and I, I know I need to get done before, you know, 2 o'clock this afternoon. But I think we misunderstand that commandment about not taking the name of the Lord our God in vain. And, and we think of that many times in terms of nothing more than adding the word damn after God. Or using a phrase like, oh my God, or something like that, that, that really is flippant with, with the name of God and so forth. But the word taking there is in the Hebrew a word that could indicate carrying. And I think that's the better understanding of that word. We're not to carry the name of the Lord our God in a vain fashion. You want to know how I can break that commandment? Just by not living a truly Christ-like life. I claim to be a believer and I live in another fashion and I am carrying the name of God, the name of Christ into this world in a vain fashion. It's much deeper. It includes putting the wrong words with it and, and, and taking his name flippantly or, or making it into a curse word or something of that nature. But it includes so much more than that. Basically, can I just put it this way? Every time I fail and sin as a believer, and this is something about the Ten Commandments that we need to understand, every time I fail and sin as a believer, I am probably failing and sinning against the second. Or, or this, this commandment. I am carrying the name of the Lord into this world in a vain fashion at that point in my life. Give you another idea how these fit together. How many people ever stole something that they didn't covet before they stole it? How many people ever committed adultery who didn't covet their neighbor's wife before they stole her? Okay? They all fit together. And any time I break any of them, I, I obviously have decided something is more important to me than God himself, and so I break the first one no matter which other ones I break. It's almost impossible to break one without breaking multiple of the Ten Commandments. That, that's what I'm getting at. We should read further, though. We'll never get done otherwise. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, sh you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's 
wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Can any of us honestly say that we've never broken at least one of those commandments? And just in case you're struggling with the thought that maybe you're clear some way on those, that you haven't really broken them, we, we need to remind ourselves of what Jesus said about these commandments in his Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, real quickly, beginning with verse 21. Jesus says to those who were there that day, you have heard that it was said to you, of old, uh, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Any of us fall in that category? Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he goes on to talk about if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. It's better for you to end up going to heaven, basically, is what he's trying to indicate here with the lack of an eye or a, or a missing limb than it is to go into hell. So we learn from what Christ says here that our sin is not only the actions that we commit, it is the thoughts that we process in our brains. And for the sake of some of the things that are being taught and spoken of and argued about in churches today, I want to just put a principle out there for you, and it's this. To desire that which God has forbidden is in and of itself sinful. That's what Christ teaches us here. To desire that which God has forbidden is in and of itself sinful. And when Jesus preaches his Sermon on the Mount, he basically takes his entire audience, every single one of them, and says to them, no matter if you live the law as faithfully as the Apostle Paul spoke like he had lived it later on, no matter how well you think you're living this, your thought processes are not perfect, you're impure, you're unholy, you're ungodly, and you are sinful, and the, there has to be an answer outside of yourself, or else there is no hope. If there is not an, out, an answer for my sin outside of myself, then I am hopeless. There must be an answer from within. Or, or, excuse me, from without. There must be an answer from without. 
And that's going to come in the person of Jesus Christ. I've been trying to make some fairly succinct statements this morning. Let me try to make another one, and it's this. One of the most vital doctrines in all the Word of God is the doctrine of the atonement. With that being the case, with, with the necessity of the answer coming from outside of us, because the reality is that we have all sinned, I didn't even mention lying. That's one of the first things kids do. You know, one of the first sins that most kids will commit is to lie. Did you get that cookie out of the cookie jar? No. You ever, you ever seen that one? We're desperate. We are hopeless without Christ. Now, in Chris Anderson's song, His Robes for Mine, the doctrine of the atonement is expressed very beautifully. I want to I review now really quickly. We're, we're going to get to 1 Corinthians 6, so don't, don't think we're not going to get there. But let me review this real quickly. In verse 1, that verse is based on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, where Paul said, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be, recon let's see, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To express that, what a lot of theologians have called the great exchange, which is a great title for that verse. To express that in poetic form, Anderson wrote this, His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. And then verse 2 is based on 1 Peter 3.18 and Romans 5.15-17. Peter said this, he said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And Paul said in Romans 5, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for man. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Since Jesus suffered the penalty of death for sin, 
we are freed from death through the resurrection unto life. And here's what Anderson said in that second verse. His robes for mine, what cause have I for dread? God's daunting law Christ mastered in my stead. Faultless I stand with righteous works, not mine, saved by my Lord's vicarious death and life. The third verse is based on Romans chapter 6, verses 20 to 23. Paul wrote there, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in light of these truths, we're reminded again of the words of the song, His robes for mine, God's justice is appeased. Jesus is crushed. And thus the fathers pleased. Christ drank God's wrath on sin, then cried, "'Tis done. Sin's wages paid. Propitiation won." And that brings us to the fourth verse, based among, on, among other verses, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Paul there was speaking of himself and is truly amazed that Jesus would die for him and save him. That is, by the way, something that all of us should be amazed about. That Jesus would die for me and save me should be one of the most amazing things that will ever cross your mind. Paul said, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and insolent opponent but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The fourth verse of that song expresses the wonder that should overwhelm all of our hearts as we think about the fact that Jesus Christ died for us. His robes for mine such anguish none can know. Christ God's beloved condemned as though his foe. He as though I, accursed and left alone. I as though he embraced and welcomed home. And that brings us to the chorus. I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. Jesus forsaken, God estranged from God. Bought by such love, my life is not my own. My praise, my all shall be for Christ alone. Here's what the writer had to say. 
about the chorus. He said, finally, we added a refrain which expresses our wonder at the cost of our salvation, then responds to Christ's love with worship and consecration. Thus, the song doesn't really progress from verse 1 to verse 4, but instead moves toward it and peaks at the refrain after each of the four meditations. Greg expresses the heartbeat of the refrain wonderfully with a gorgeous melodic line, and I trust that your congregation will delight to lift your voices and proclaim, I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. Now turn your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 18 to 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. Paul is in the midst of confronting and correcting many, many problems that had developed in the church at Corinth. And here he specifically deals with the issue of the evil of sexual immorality. You have to put this back in the context of the place, Corinth. Corinth was a double seaport. They even had a way so that they wouldn't have to sail all the way around this little peninsula-like piece of land. They, they had a way to take ships out of the water, roll them across this tiny little strip of land that was Corinth, and put them in on the other side. It was quicker to do that and safer to do that than it was to sail around. Corinth was a place of multiple temples to pagan gods. Temples at which the worship included immorality. If you wanted to call a woman a really bad name in that culture, you called her a Corinthian woman. The city was literally filled with prostitutes. cultic prostitutes and just otherwise because again it's a double seaport so sailors are coming in from everywhere Corinth was one of the most corrupt cities in a very corrupt culture think the San Francisco of, of that day and maybe worse And to these people, the Apostle Paul writes, because they came out of this culture, this is the only culture they've ever known, and, and there's always the temptation to go back into your culture or, or think that the culture is not so bad or whatever. And into this culture, Paul writes in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He tells them here, Flee this thing that is so prominent in the culture. Flee this, this immorality, this ungodliness that 
that has been such a part of your life before you came to faith in Christ. And, and actually in chapter 7, he's going to say to some people, you have fled from the immorality, but now you're not doing what should be done within your marriages. It's almost like he's saying you could flee too far. Can I, can I just say it this way? Satan corrupts everything. And Satan has corrupted sexuality. Do not allow his corruption of sexuality taint your mind about what God designed to be pure. All right? And that's all I need to say about that. But be careful about that. That seems to have been a problem here in Corinth. The world made something dirty that God intended to be pure in the right bounds. Now, I think it's always interesting to me when I read this, flee from sexual immorality. When it comes to the devil, what does God say? He says, stand firm. And the picture there is a Roman soldier in the middle of a field with his spiked boots on his feet so he can get a firm, established position for battle and stand firm. When it comes to our war with Satan, go out in the middle of the field, plant yourself, and stand firm against him, and he'll run from you. When it comes to immorality, he says, I know how I made mankind, and you better get out of there because you will not survive if you tempt it. Now those are the asides. Those are the those are the preaching points. Just I'll I'll, I'll quit preaching and no. You understand, I hope. But I want us to notice some things about this and, and we begin with this idea and I'm I'm borrowing my outline in part from the course itself. We are to cling to Christ. If you go back to verse 15, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And he goes on and he talks about there, Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And so he contrasts here, for the believer, we are joined to Christ. We are then not to join ourselves to that which is immoral. We're not to do that. We flee immorality. Where do we go when we flee immorality? We run to Christ. We cling to our bridegroom. We have been united with Him, to Him. And we are to cling to Him. 
we turn away from the evil and we turn to Christ. Because that's the only place of victory. Let me, let me emphasize that just a little more. And, and we'll do that in this way, and, and you've had the outline, many of you at least. I cling to Christ because He's the only way to salvation. And we've said that throughout. I must have Christ or perish. It's that simple. I must have Christ or perish. Without Him there is no hope, no true happiness, and no heaven. Without Him there is only a future in eternal damnation, in eternal hell. Jesus could not have been clearer, by the way, when He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. He is the only way. Peter understood this to be so, and thus he boldly spoke these words to the Jewish leaders when they were trying to get Him to stop speaking out for Christ. He said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. No other name. No other one. The Corinthians then, and we today, must cling to Christ because He is the only one who can assure us of salvation and eternal life. That's the start. But we continue to cling to Him. I cling to Christ second because He has made me a part of His bride. So again, we're turning from the evil one from the evil immorality, so to speak, and we're turning to the heavenly bridegroom. And Paul doesn't make a specific reference to Christ as the heavenly bridegroom in this passage, but I do want you to notice that the whole context here is that of, of um, being a one with Him, of being a part of, of His body. In other words, we cannot cling to our, our sin which necessitated the death of our Lord and cling to Christ at the same time. Again, notice the wording going back up to verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That's the intimacy here. That's the unity. That's the oneness. Your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take them and make them members of a prostitute? Shall I then... Shall I then take those and, and make them something, you know, yoke up with that which is immoral, that which is wrong? He goes on to talk about in that passage, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This is, this is intimacy here. We become one spirit with Christ. When we flee from sexual immorality, we free, flee from that which is evil it is true, but implied in the full context is that we flee to the one who is our heavenly bridegroom. We flee to Christ. He's the only one who gives us victory over sin. You try to fight this in your own, in your own power, in your own might, and you'll lose. He's the one who gives us victory over sin. So we cling to Him because He is the only one who can save. We cling to Him because He is the heavenly bridegroom. 
who gives us victory, and then we cling to Christ because he is the focal point of heavenly worship. If you look at Revelation 5, I want to just read various parts here, not the whole chapter, but in heaven we see this, Worthy are you to take the scroll, this is Christ, and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The Lord Jesus will be the object of our worship in heaven and he should be the object of our worship now. We cling to him because he is God in human form. We cling to him because he is worthy as the spotless lamb who gave himself as a sacrifice for sinners. We cling to him because he's the heavenly bridegroom. We cling to him because he is the only one in whom we can have salvation. And so we cling to Christ. Is that true in your life daily? We want to flee from sin, but we don't just flee from one sin into another. We, we have an object to which we flee. That one is Christ. We flee to Him. And then when we think about our salvation and what was necessary, I marvel at the cost. This is down toward the last of this. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. What a cost. If you have truly trusted the Lord Jesus, he bought you with a terrible price. Those to whom Paul wrote would have understood the horrors of crucifixion because they would have seen it and would have been taught that Jesus died in this manner and was forsaken having had their sins placed upon him. It takes us to the passage many of you thought would be perhaps the focus of the last sermon on this, Psalm 22. I want to read a, a fairly significant portion of that psalm just to remind us of Christ's suffering, of the price that was paid. Starting with verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In, your, in, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He thrusts or trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my you at my brother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan, 
surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. In this passage, we have an awful description of what it was like to die on a cross. For Christ, both the physical and social suffering were extreme. Not only did he suffer what many think is the most horrible kind of execution imaginable ever devised by man, but we also know that all of his companions abandoned him. Disciples are all gone. And John is close at times, but not really standing for Christ as he should in the moment. But the greatest suffering of all was the suffering that's in evidence in the very first verse of the psalm, a verse quoted by Jesus as he hung on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anderson speaks of this in his robes for mine in the phrase, God estranged from God. Whatever else this means, it is indeed terrible. Deep questions can arise when we sing that phrase, and I'll mention the most troubling and perhaps controversial. How can God be estranged from God? I was asked that. In other words, can the triune God, the one in three, be divided? And our answer to that is no, and yet. The and yet must be included here for to determine that the Son who was the God-man, left the man Jesus prior to this cry as to hold a position held by the Gnostics, who taught that the Christ Spirit came upon Jesus, the man, at his baptism and left him sometime prior to his death on the cross, certainly before this agonizing cry. And that simply cannot be. And so what do we do with the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, let me go to some better minds than mine. Take me just a little bit to get through this, but I want you to hear this. I'm going to start with uh, a man of some notoriety in intelligence, and that was John Calvin. And to give you an idea of how brilliant Calvin was, they didn't know what Bible you know, translation or whatever he was preaching from when he would preach in Geneva. And it was finally determined that he was reading you know, looking at either the Hebrew or the Greek and translating it on the fly into French. And that's how he preached. I know he's got a better mind than I do if he can do that. Here's what he said. As our Savior Jesus Christ went hanging on the cross, and when ready to yield up his soul into the hands of God his Father, made use of these very words, and he's talking about the, my God, my God here, we must consider how these two things can agree, that Christ was the only begotten Son of God, and that yet he was so penetrated with grief, seized with so much mental trouble as to cry out that God his Father had forsaken him, 
The apparent contradiction between these two statements has constrained many interpreters to have recourse to evasions for fear of charging Christ with blame in this matter. Accordingly, and this is important, they have said that Christ made this complaint rather according to the opinion of the common people who witnessed his sufferings than from any feeling which he had of being deserted by his Father. But they have not considered, said Calvin, that they greatly lessened the benefit of our redemption in imagining that Christ was altogether exempted from the terrors of the judgment of God, that the judgment of God strikes into sinners. In other words, when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was something of a true forsaking going on here. H.C. Leopold, a Lutheran commentator, ended his comments on this. No man can fathom the mystery of this outcry and what it meant in the experience of Christ, but of this we can be assured that God-forsakenness was real. John Phillips said, God did not open heaven and call down to earth and say, this is my beloved son, and, or did not God and open heaven and call down to earth and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Oh, yet, why then did Christ cry in agony? Because there on the cross, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. A great gulf separated him from the holiness of God. God was holy and Jesus had become not sinful, never that. He had become sin for us. And then Philip says this, No wonder he was abandoned by God. No wonder he roared out like a lion in pain. He was tasting death for us, experiencing what every lost soul will experience in hell for all eternity, what it meant to be God abandoned in the dark. Alan Ross, who wrote a large commentary on the Psalms, said, for David to be abandoned by God simply meant that his prayer would be left unanswered and he would die. But for Jesus to be abandoned to death by the Father in heaven meant that his death would accomplish our redemption. Or to put it more precisely, because the Father abandoned him who died in our place, he will never abandon us who have come to faith in him. Warren Wiersbe said this, I am not alone, Jesus had told his disciples, because the Father is with me, and yet he cried out that the Lord had forsaken him. When he spoke these words, he had been engaged in a mysterious transaction with the Father, dying for the sins of the world. On the cross, Jesus was made sin and a curse for us. In some inexplicable way, he experienced what condemned lost sinners experience away from the presence of the Lord. In other words, what Wearsby is arguing for is an atonement where Christ actually bore the wrath of God for my sin and for yours. MacArthur said this, In this unique and strange miracle, Jesus was crying out in anguish because of the separation he now experienced from his heavenly Father for the first and only time in all eternity. It is the only time which we have a record that Jesus did not address his God as Father. Because the Son had taken sin upon himself, the Father turned his back. That mystery is so great and imponderable 
that it is not surprising that Martin Luther is said to have gone into seclusion for a long time trying to understand it and came away as confused as when he began. In some way and by some means in the secrets of divine sovereignty and omnipotence the God-man was separated from God for a brief time at Calvary as the furious wrath of the Father was poured out on the sinless Son who in matchless grace became sin for those who believe in him. And this from David Turner, who wrote the Baker exegetical commentary on the New Testament on Matthew's gospel. He said, how could Jesus, whose unique identity, mission, and relationship to God as the Son have been so featured, be forsaken by God? This is one of the most impenetrable mysteries of the entire gospel narrative, with the cry of abandonment, Jesus does not lose face, but faith, but expresses the depths of his unimaginable pain at being abandoned by the Father. What is our conclusion? It's just this. Though we do not and may not ever, even after we arrive in heaven itself, understand the full implications of this forsaking. The forsaking was real as the Lord Jesus Christ paid the awful price necessary to redeem sinful men, women, and children. I don't understand this. I don't understand it. I don't think I ever will. I don't think I'll understand it when I get to heaven and have the full use of all capacities of the human brain. But to try to claim that this is some way not a true forsaking is, is to really say that he didn't pay the penalty because without Christ, my penalty would be eternal damnation, a penalty that I could never pay on my own throughout all eternity. And I would be forever forsaken by God. I don't understand it. But I think it's okay to sing God estranged from God, even though we don't understand it, because there is evidence that that had to be some way, in some mysterious way, that had to happen. Or else the atonement could not have been made. Uh, you may not like my conclusion there, and that's fine. But if you don't like it and you actually can understand it, then would you please inform me because I, I'd love to know. I just don't think I'm capable of knowing. And let me very briefly, briefly exhort you with this truth. Since God is infinite and you and I are finite, you will never understand all that there is to understand about God. I, I dealt with a young man some years ago who... I think he meant well. He wanted to know everything he could know about God, and, and it was admirable, and he had a real heart for God, and that's admirable. But it would frustrate him when he ran into things he couldn't understand. Those things about God that we don't understand can either be stumbling blocks or stepping stones. They're stepping stones for me, at least. If he were 
fully comprehensible by me, he, he wouldn't be all that great. The fact that there is mystery in God, the fact that, that he is beyond my ability to comprehend him is, is really beneficial to me. I would expect God to be well above me so that I can't fully understand. I don't fully understand the Trinity. I don't fully understand the hypostatic union. I don't fully understand a being who is eternal. That no matter when you say it, God is. I don't, I don't understand that. I know it's true, but I don't understand it because I'm a creature of time. And if you try to demand that you can understand everything God has revealed about himself, you'll be in a rubber room soon. Or you'll come up with things about God that are completely wrong. Before we leave the song, I want you to look at the fact that my life is not my own real quickly. I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. Jesus forsaken, God estranged from God, bought by such love, my life is not my own. My praise, my all shall be for Christ alone. What does Paul say here in 1 Corinthians 6 concerning the demand for our full commitment to Christ? He says, you are not your own for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. All who believe have been bought with a price, the price of the awful sacrifice of Christ Jesus, our Lord. All of us. We're not our own. Don't belong to me. Terminology here is actually slave terminology. We're bought with a price. Price is paid for one who is a slave, and the Apostle Paul understood that. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, the Living or the uh, Legacy Standard Bible actually uh, gets this word right when it says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel. The Greek word is doulos, and basically it means slave. Paul, the murderer, the persecutor of the church, had been purchased with the blood of Christ, and thus he considered himself to be a slave of Christ. Jesus, too, used slave terminology when speaking of his disciples. In John chapter 15, verse 20, he said to them, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. The slave is not above his master. When one considers then the person of Christ and the awful price that he paid for our salvation, can we but give ourselves to him? What, is, what, what else are we to do but give ourselves fully and wholly and unreservedly to him? And, and none of us do. I understand that. I understand that every time that I sin, I, I, I'm going against that. But it ought to be the goal of my life to unreservedly, completely, without any question, give myself to Christ. 
And that ought to be true for you as well. He bought you. He bought me. The perfect, holy God-man paid an unimaginable price for us. Remember where we started? Very, very early on, God hates sin. Hates it. It doesn't change in my life now. If I sin now, God still hates that sin. And so we as sinners deserve nothing of the good things that the Lord has given us in this life, much less eternal life in Christ our substitute, and yet He paid the price for us to redeem us. Thus He deserves us. He deserves you. He deserves all that you are and all that you have. And so we're left with this question. Does he have you? Does he have you? I have to ask myself that same question. Does he have me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, it was an unimaginable price that Christ paid 